0: It is a blessing to be able to to worship together and celebrate our Christian freedom, uh, the freedom of religion, to be able to worship as we see fit, uh, without restriction, without uh, coercion, and uh, we're very thankful for that. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 20 through 26. A little bit later in our service, we will be celebrating communion, uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper, and uh, Pastor Yeckley will be leading and officiating that for us this morning, and so we look forward to, to participating under that leadership, his leadership this morning. But now we turn ourselves to the Word of God. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 to the end of the chapter. Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone dis- cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. Now, we continue our series that we began uh, at the beginning of uh, last month, and we are looking at the soldier theme in the second chapter of Second Timothy. Uh, In chapter 2, verse 3, we see those words that uh, Paul was calling Timothy to share in the sufferings as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And so, that theme kind of progresses through the chapter. There's a few twists and turns, but overall, that theme of being a good soldier is here within the text. And so, this morning, I want to ask us this question, why do you think That Paul would describe following Christ as being a form of military service. It's a very unique kind of picture and metaphor that he would call us towards a soldiering and following of Christ our Savior. You know, most denominations actually do not style themselves after this metaphor. In fact, most denominations will style themselves off of a form of um, metaphor related to the church. Uh, I was thinking just this week of, like, Catholicism even, as it claims to have a historic claim to uh, the beginning of the church. They, They see themselves, describe themselves as being Catholic and universal in that sense, and Presbyterians they style themselves after hierarchies of elder boards. Congregationalists style themselves after the, the congregational center of authority. Uh, even, the, uh, even, even Baptists, we're not technically Baptists here, but Baptists will actually uh, reside the authority in the proper use of the ordinances. Episcopalians will structure themselves and kind of promote the idea of the, the succession of bishops. Bishops. Pentecostals describe themselves after the effusion of the Holy Spirit. Very unique. Maybe it's only pastors who think of these things. I don't know. But have you ever considered that the Salvation Army Church is unique among denominations in this regard, that they style themselves after military? Um, It might surprise you here this morning to know that Sally's is more than a thrift store it is actually, in its founding, a denominational structure. Uh, William Booth, uh, in the very beginning, in 1865, formed. Uh, he could not seem to get the support from his Methodist church, and so he he took took the gospel to the streets and went into the very poor districts of London and proclaimed the gospel, and people were being saved. And he had a very big heart for those who were thieves and gamblers and prostitutes, and, and, and God changed those, those hearts. And then gradually, those people were then sharing the gospel, too, on the streets preaching. And as that denomination grew, the structure began to form around the military. Very fascinating. Um, General Booth, as he became known, uh, actually uh, authored a series of letters, and I am going somewhere with this okay? Uh, General Booth authored a series of letters that he would present kind of like as a a talk to the various uh, salvationists that would gather for convocation. And these letters became, uh, in time, collected, and they were called the purity of the heart. The purity of the heart. And it's an exposition of the Beatitudes and Jesus teaching there that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Uh, Can can you see where I'm going now a little bit? Soldiers, purity of heart. That's where I'm going, okay? Stay with me. I took some time this morning to read, or this week to read some of those letters, and I want to share just a short excerpt, something that he said that I think should resonate with every believer, no matter what denominational background we have come from or grown up in or exist in, it's biblical what he said. I think we need to hear it. He said this, speaking in his context, he said, perhaps nothing delights the genuine salvationists more than the definite testimonies of those living in the enjoyment of the blessing, the blessing." And yet I'm afraid that many of our soldiers do not definitely experience and openly profess the enjoyment of the blessing. When we say that a man is pure in the religious sense, we mean that he is right and honest and true inside and out, and that he not only professes but practices the things that have to do with his duty to God and to man. Sin is spoken of in the Bible as filthiness or defilement of the body, mind, or spirit. Purity in practice means, therefore, the absence of such filthiness, filthy things as drunkenness, gluttony, dishonesty, cheating, falsehood, pride, malice, bad tempers, selfishness, unbelief, disobedience, Or the like. In short, to be pure in soul signifies deliverance from all and everything which the Lord shows you will be opposed to the will of God. It means that you not only possess the ability to live the kind of life that He desires, but that you actually do live it. It's a remarkable statement, and I see in that a fascinating focus. As soldiers in his denominational structure, they were pursuing a purity. They were doing it. Why? Why were they doing it? Because they knew that a pure soul that is freed from sin, binding sin, is blessed. There is a sweetness in the soul that you enjoy that not otherwise can be known. And being connected to God personally. They also recognize that God loves those who are a pure heart. God loves them. God loves a pure heart. And and having a pure heart frees you then to be able to serve God effectively. Now, I see in this text, if you look at verse 21, the idea here that a person who is purifying their soul uh, will be ready for every good work. So, a person who is freed from the the anxiety that sin creates will then be freed up in their mind and heart and soul to be ready for any good work that the Lord would put before them. There is a blessedness in that. And they recognize the importance of following Christ as a soldier. And why, again, military service? Because a military exists to do something. They train, they discipline, they they march, and they prepare for combat. They're focused. They're on a single mission. They're ready to do what their commander would have them to do. They're ready for every good work. And... So, I'm going to develop this morning through this text the idea that soldiers of Christ pursue a pure heart so that they're ready for every good work. That is where I hope to, to bring us as we work through this text this morning, and we need to recognize that there is a little bit of a parable here in verse 20 to 21. There's an analogy that's being described here, and then an application The analogy, I'm going to read verse 20 again. I want you to see the analogy. He says, Now, in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Now, Paul provided this analogy in a specific context. He intended to communicate something to Timothy. I, early on in this week, I read this, and I thought I knew where Paul was going. I thought I understood the analogy and what the application might mean for us. In fact, I even had in my mind running through some illustrations that I could start to use. I was pretty excited about it, and then I started to study the context, and it all flew away. My presupposition was shattered by what the context is actually designed to teach us here. In this text, and actually, I thought that the, the that Paul was going to advocate that God can use all kinds of vessels, and there is a certain essence of truth in that statement. But, but God says it elsewhere through Paul in First Corinthians. He talks about many members of having diversity of gifts, and 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 that was the context in which he was speaking there. But not here. This is an interesting context. And Paul here is first of all. Speaking to who? He's speaking to Timothy. He's trying to encourage Timothy as a future and present leader in the church that he, that he would be a vessel that was designed and used for honorable use. Very interesting that there are two other men that are named in this context. And, and uh, why don't you look at verse 17. Uh, Mark Yeckley spoke on this text last Sunday, and so it should be somewhat familiar to us. In verse 17, there's a description of two other men who were leaders in the church, but yet had taken a turn. They had swerved from the truth. Their names were Hymenaeus and Philetus. They had been saying that the resurrection had already happened, and it was starting to disquiet people's faith, and they were concerned, and they were anxious, and they were starting to get a following, and people were starting to listen to them. And so, it's important for us to see a contrast that's being described in this text. Timothy is not to be that kind of a leader within the church. Important for us to see that. We're also told in verse 20 uh, that there is a great house. That's the context of this parable. You might remember, perhaps, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, that Paul describes his desire to come and be and teach Timothy personally, but he couldn't. So, what he did was he sent the letter ahead. He sent the letter ahead so that Timothy would know how to behave in the household of God. This is the context by which this little parable is being presented, that there are not in this case a discussion about two different kinds of believers, but two different kinds of teachers. Two different kinds of teachers who are part of God's plan Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable use. Uh, Very fascinating that the word dishonor means shameful. It means shameful. At our house, our small little household, we have different vessels for different uses. We have nice dishware that we don't bring out every time for any in every purpose, daily use. But we also have some plasticware, um, and we even recycle ice cream containers. And we have ice cream containers that uh, carry out the compost. And we don't change out or clean out that bucket very often. And after a while, it becomes very dishonorable. It becomes very shameful. In fact, I have noticed that after a couple weeks the mold layer underneath is so repulsive to some of our kids that they chuck it into the fire pit. And yet, that plastic container has a purpose for us in our household. I share that illustration because Paul is trying to communicate to Timothy that while we might see people doing certain things, dishonorable things within the church we have to recognize that we are not the master of the church god is the master of the church and he's doing something through dishonorable and even shameful things that people will do in the body for purposes which he alone holds the answers i'm getting a little bit ahead of myself in terms of the application but here again in verse 21 the application is I believe, clear, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, they're going to be a vessel for honorable use. Set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, and ready for every good work. I see at least two points of application here. And the first is, false teachers purify the church. And purified teachers purify the church. That sounds like contradictions, doesn't it? How do false teachers purify the church? Don't they corrupt the church? Why does God allow dishonorable vessels into His church? You're asking a good question. It's a question that has been asked in another context in Romans chapter 9, verse 21, where Paul says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Well, the answer is yes. God has that right. It's His own right to to do this. Now, I see here in this broader text that Paul is explaining that sometimes the dishonorable vessels that are permitted to be in the house are designed to be placed, to purify, to reveal the true church. And I see this, if you look into uh, just the next chapter, in chapter chapter 4, excuse me, two chapters later, in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, we see these words, "'For the time is coming,' When people will not endure sound doctrine, but will have itching ears, and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We look at people who present false gospels and error in their teaching as divisive charades, and we should. But we have to recognize that God allows some of these people to come into the church in order to draw away people who are not of the true church. There is a refining capacity that, is, that occurs when these things happen. How do we know those who are false teachers? Well, we've seen some of the descriptions already. They they get them; so they're consumed about things that don't matter ultimately at all. They they war over minute details. They're concerned about the minute, and they miss the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ to change people from the inside out because they've never been changed themselves. They've never truly been born again, and so. Paul is very concerned. And we're going to see uh, in the next Sunday in verses chapter three, we're going to go into this in the next week and see some of the description of what people will be like in the latter days and the need for false teachers to come in and refine the church, if you will, so that the true church actually stands. And the kind of works of the flesh that attract people to them. I think it's important. For us to pause and to consider how how dangerous it is to not have a pure heart, that we in our own spirits can participate in creating the divisions that we despise. It's so important that we have pure hearts before the Lord so that we be holy, set apart, ready for any good work that the Lord would call us to do. We don't want to be engaged in those works which destroy His church, not at all. And elders and deacons need to purify their hearts so that they're ready to serve. And those deacons and elders who are purifying their hearts will be leading in spirit and in truth. Why is it that God allows these people into the church? I do not have the answer completely, but it seems as though the text is to winnow out seems to winnow out. But on the other hand, elders and deacons who have pure hearts are actually going to purify the church in a positive direction. And that's what we would prefer. That's what we would want. And so it's so important that we guard our hearts with all diligence for out of it issue life itself. It's so important. And so there's the analogy. There's some applications. But I want us to now consider... How important it is that we put into practice the process of purifying our heart. The last verses, 22 through 26, really go into detail. gives us three kind of areas that Timothy needed to purify his heart if he was going to be a, a helpful vessel for God. And there is a putting into practice the gospel that's here, if you will, a gospel polish of the pot, if we're a vessel, we have to purify the inside, not just the outside, not be hypocritical. Now, in verse 21, we want to be useful to the master of the house, and we're told there that we can clean ourselves from dishonor, that which is dishonorable. How do we make ourselves a clean heart? How do we clean the inside? Well, the way we clean the inside is by returning to the very center of the gospel itself. The very center of it. The very center is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the very center, we find the forgiveness of our sins and the freedom to have fellowship with the Father. It's through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, thinking about the analogy of cleaning a pot. And Paul uses the picture of silver being cleaned. I've considered silver how it tarnishes. Uh, It tarnishes naturally when it sits out in the open air. Uh, I read a little bit about it this week, and I learned that it's sulfur particles in the air that actually create oxidization, and then it becomes tarnished and has that black hue on the outside. Now, I'm not an expert completely in cleaning, but I recognize that there is an application of comparison here between cleaning silver and also using the gospel on yourself. You don't want an abrasive cleaner on silver or else you're going to tear away some of those underlying layers. But there's got to be a little bit of grit there to lift off the outside layer, a little bit of grit. And this is how I believe we need to think about the gospel even when we've been born again and we become contaminated with sin and our hearts are not as pure as they should be. We reapply the gospel, the softness that we, we hear the love of God speaking to us through the cross. And we, we apply, though, the realization that that sin put Him there. And we repent and we turn away from that which was making our hearts impure. And we return and give thanks to the Heavenly Father for His forgiveness, which is ours through Jesus Christ. That is an a application of little, like the grit, but yet it is soft. There's a softness to the gospel there that helps us to be pure, to put away, and I see in these verses uh, a pattern of Paul saying, no, you need to put away these things so that you can put on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Put away these youthful lusts, and avoid the quarrels, and, and prioritize people, and, and follow Christ. So, this morning, as we're looking through these, I have specific points of consideration, The first, verse 22, I believe he's telling all who would listen, but Timothy specifically, replace youthful passions and replace it with a passion for Christ. Verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call upon the Lord with a pure heart. Youthful passions, while it does include those natural sexual drives that youth will have, there are many other passions, though, that youth are possessed with. Youth can be hot-headed. We can be intolerant of views that are not parallel to ours. And this is something that can affect all kinds of people. Young men, particularly, can be characterized as being partial. Sometimes, to the other extreme, we can be half-hearted and apathetic. And we can have an unwarranted self-attention and self-desire to promote ourselves. These are all passions that are youthful and are in contrast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why is it that political organizations focus on youth recruitment? Have you ever thought about that? One reason is that they have an, an energy, and they idolize the ideal, and they throw themselves in, and the black and the white thinking infects their, their thought processes. But that's useful fuel for political organizations. The reality is, we ought not participate in that kind of worldly thinking. We actually need to be, be reaching out with the love of Christ beyond our own instincts, our own passions, and taking the gospel to all creatures. Instead of pursuing the one track of political revolution, we ought to be instead Be learning to apply the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It means we need to be thinking clearly about what other people desire and thinking about how that we can help them accomplish what God would have for them. We need to be pointing people to Christ who satisfies all our longings. You know, it's very easy in political discourse to forget that people are not our enemy. People are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. And it's so important, we need to show people by our lives that we have found true happiness, that we have purity in our own souls, and we have found happiness that transcends anything this world can offer. We need to apply the polish of the gospel and remove those impurities from our hearts and thought processes. If we don't have a pure heart before Christ, we will engage in the works of the flesh and we will react in anger when sinners do and think sinful thoughts. We will forget that they're sinners from the start and that they need the love of Jesus Christ to turn and convert their souls. That's what's first and primary. And may the Holy Spirit convict our hearts and may the Holy Spirit lead us to a repentance. Of attitudes that are infected by the world. We also are told here Timothy is to replace a quarrel, quarrelsome tendency with a love for people. Verse 23 have nothing to do with foolish or ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to everyone, able to teach patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. In our love for Christ, leadership needs to avoid unnecessary quarrels. Now, in these verses, there is an indication of where quarrels stem from, and it often stems from not having enough information about particular thing that we're talking about. And in these verses, you can see, um, you know, ignorant controversies. We just don't have enough information to be able to argue our point or argue their point correctly, and what we're doing is we're adding fuel to the fire, and there's all heat and no light. That's not helpful. Now, I left Facebook last year for various reasons. I could sense in my own soul this kind of heat that was developing. The very lack of context in a Facebook post breeds controversy. We don't have enough information as to why the person posted what they posted. And then your mind starts to interpret in a self-reflective way. Oh, they're coming out to hurt me. They're, kind of, they're attacking me by that post. And then all of a sudden you start to like ramp up with your own interpretation and start arguing back. That's not helpful. It's not helpful. And I could sense that in my spirit, and I knew it wasn't helpful, and it's so important to remove that tendency and possibility. I'm not perfectly pure completely yet. I'm working on it. But you need to identify it and see it. to be able to turn from it. It doesn't mean you have to abandon Facebook, that's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, be careful of how you're interpreting those who are engaging with you. Don't get into needless and unnecessarily controversies. Be careful about moving towards quarrelsome. Leaders are called to be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, and correcting opponents with gentleness. Now, it's an interesting phrase, and I won't want you to say, well, pastor, you didn't bring up this point. This is a really important point. We are still called to bring truth to people. We are still called, even in a Facebook world, to present truth. But we have to be careful that we do it with gentleness and kindness in how we communicate, and that goes for any public sphere that we're in. Be very careful And we do need to stand for truth. I'm not saying that we're not. Very important that we stand for truth. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be starting a seven week series on the importance of what the Bible says about our role in relationship to government. Really important for us to think on these topics. And so, we are a republic, a government by elected representatives which is very unique. And so we have to be engaged a bit in thinking about what's going on as we participate in self-governance. And so we need to be equipped with the truth so that we know how to not be captivated by fear, but that we are able to stand for the truth. And it's so important. And we need to recognize that we are in a greater conflict, and the church often is dragged in at times. To that conflict. So, we need to think clearly about some of these issues. A third area here is that we are told, Timothy, you know, replace worldly thinking with a heavenly mindset. Verse 25, in the last half it says, God may perhaps grant them, the one you might be tempted to have a quarrel with, might grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being capt- uh, captured by him to do his will. Worldliness, worldliness is primarily a lifestyle that is formed without factoring God's rule into your decision making. It's so easy to get so engrossed in the daily events, daily tasks of what we're doing that we forget that there is a sovereign Lord who is ruling over all and we, are, we need to be ready for every good work. We need to be ready to do what He would want us to do today. And so we have to shed and work hard to put our mind and soul into a reference where God is ruling over all. And it's so easy to fall into quarreling with people in the marketplace and people need to know that we're Christians and we're gonna, they're going to know it by our love that we have for one another and also for them and we need to be able to communicate that. And we need to talk to people and hear what their concerns are. You know, many people that we would have conflict with a lot of what their political ideologies may consist of are things that, that find a reference in God who made them. There are so many people that focus on identity as the source by which they will find happiness. And we see a, our society running headlong as if it were off a cliff in the wrong direction. At heart, these people are are dying and starving for happiness. And we need to point them to the Lord Jesus Christ who gives all happiness, who is all joy. But that's a heavenly mindset. We want them to be able to experience these truths and to have them. I think it's important that in our patriotism that we're not having a worldly outlook. We need to be careful Generations come and generations go, but the Word of the Lord abides forever. And so, it's so important that we engage our society as Christians who have a citizenship in another place, so important that we engage people with the truth of God's Word and point them to where they can have true happiness. And perhaps God will grant some to respond, and there'll be a response of repentance. And they too will find the truth. That's what we hope for. I, as I was meditating on this text, I, I told you that I, I thought I knew where Paul was going with this. And I had in my mind this illustration that's going to fit here somewhere. I think it does fit somewhere <laughs> if it's here at the end. Maybe you've heard of the Japanese art of restoring pottery. Broken vessels, broken pots. It's called kinjutsu, or kinsuji, excuse me. I'm going to hear about that later. Kinsuji. But... The reality is what they do is they, they take broken pieces of pottery and they use like a, an enamel and they, they mix a little bit of gold with it, and they, they seal up the pieces and recreate the pot that was broken. And it's a beautiful picture, actually, an elegant way to restore something that which was broken. And if you're thinking on a spiritual plane, you're starting to recognize that we are all, if you will, broken, right? We're all broken vessels. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, we've been restored. The reality is, we live in a world where contamination comes, and we have to clean the inside as well as the outside of the pot. And it's so important that we do not allow the silver that we've been recreated with to tarnish. We need to be ready to be used for every honorable work that the Lord would call us to. And so, by remembering the precious love of Jesus Christ that would give Himself up for us, we have the means by which we can purify and cleanse impurities that come upon us. A pure heart makes the heart sing. There is a joy. You know, I hope this is not my you know, an experience that's just left to me alone. I'm, I'm sure that others have experienced this, that when the Holy Spirit has brought to your attention an area of your life where you have just been, it's sin has been gnawing at you and it's created a blindness. And when that light comes in and, and you repent of it and you turn away from it, your heart is so light. It is so free. There is a glorious joy that comes when our hearts become pure. And That blessing that that William Booth talked about should be available for all who call upon the name of Jesus Christ, and it is. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit who reminds us of our deep and abiding relationship with Him and gives us the means to clean and purify. So, as soldiers of Christ, you can be praying for Jeremy and Eric and myself as spiritual leaders, that we would be cleaning the inside of our hearts so that we'd be able to show you how to clean the inside of your hearts so that we might rejoice together in following our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It requires that we put gospel polish into practice. Soldiers of the cross, soldiers of Christ, pursue a pure heart so that we are ready for every good work. Let's pray.